And I think that there's also so much to be gleaned from the work that um, artists of African descent are making in terms of how we understand Blackness intramurally, you know, within our own communities. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. We listen to experts on this show, not because we're sheep letting people think for us, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Y'all hear the crazy stuff they be talking about on TV, yo. Maybe they wow. Um, <laughs> not because of that. We do it because we know that there are people out there that are engaged with topics on a different level. They study, they research, they consider things in a different way. They think for a living. I mean, when you want a painting, you want to see a painting, you want to see a painting from somebody like Amy Sherrill, right? Carrie James Marshall, Charlie Palmer, Kevin Wack Williams. You want to see what those people are doing because they are painting all the time. They're engaged. They're masters at it. I mean, when you want a fine art print, a woodcut, I mean, who else you going to go to? You going to holler at your boy because that's what I do. I know what I'm doing. When it's time to have a high level conversation about art and Afrofuturism and all the good stuff in between, I go to the scholars. I go to Dr. Tiffany E. Barber. No relation to your boy, but you know, maybe, maybe she's a distant cousin or something. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's a distant cousin, yo. I claim her. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll take her over. She's an assistant professor of Africana Studies and Art History at the University of Delaware. She's done fellowships at Art Table, the Delaware Art Museum. She'll be a postdoctoral fellow at the Getty Research Institute. I mean, I'm just saying all that to say that she knows what she's talking about. She's on top of this thing. You don't believe me? You can go to her website tiffanyebarber.com you can see the research you can read the papers you can see the curatorial stuff she does i mean you can check it out if you want to but i mean just take my word for it <laughs> all you gotta do is listen to this take my word for it she knows what she's talking about i was super excited to get her on the show it was a great conversation i'm telling you you're gonna enjoy it i promise head on over to studionoisepodcast.com check out transcripts of the show it's right there in the show notes. You know, I add them in, you know, your boy is a one man show. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm catching up to it. I'm getting it done. Uh, so it'll be right there in the show notes where you can see it. Also from the site, you can join the Studio Noise Patreon. Like Dia Deja. She's a longtime supporter and listener to the show. Thank you, girl, for all the support. All this time that you've been doing it. She she always lets me know <laughs> what she likes about the show. Yo, I appreciate it, Joe. Yo. You can be just like her. Make sure you keep this show going. Uh, with any little bit of support that you give would be uh, amazing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I do it for the love. So, you know, anything you could give to help me keep this thing going, you know, I sure do appreciate it. And that's it. You know, I bring you these high level conversations and all you have to do, all you got to do is just sit back and be inspired, yo. Only thing you have to do is get in that studio and make some noise when you finish. Because that's what this stuff is for, yo, to get you charged up, get you back into the studio, get you back on your art grind. And we just here to keep you company. You know what I'm talking about? So all you got to do is go tell two art friends. They got to get up on this. After the break, we got Dr. Tiffany Barber right here. You know, it's the noise. Yes.
Hey there, I am Arnika Dawkins, gallerist, owner of Arnika Dawkins Gallery, specializing in fine art photography, and you are listening to Studio Noise. All right, it's your boy Jay Barber. Another episode of Studio Noise. You know, I like to bring in the big guns. And so I went and got scholar, curator, critic, Dr. Tiffany E. Barber to come on the podcast and talk with talk to me. Last scene, gallivanting around New York with Rashawn Rucker. <laughs> Having a good old time. How you doing, Tiffany? I'm good. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to be in New York and hang out with Ruck at his studio. So major that he's doing that residency and I'm so happy for him and seeing how his work is developing has been amazing. And, and it, he introduced me to you, which is also amazing. Yeah. But you're here with me now. Get to talk to you. We are we are not related, you know, and by any means. But you are more than welcome to come to the cookout and hang out with me at any time. I Absolutely not. It's so funny. I was telling my partner. I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "I'm going to be on Jamal Barber's podcast." No relation. <laughs> funny enough. <laughs> yeah, no relation, yo. So as we go along this conversation, we're either going to talk about black art and Afrofuturism, or we're going to listen to you dance for like thirty minutes. Like it's completely up to you. Dance. I don't know yeah, what you're gonna yeah. hear. Probably love the bumping <laughs> around and, and you'd be like, "Are you okay? What's, yeah. what's going on over there?" Hey, you like, know, but it's a vibe. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you're, you're a dancer. Like that's yeah. what I found out about you. Like uh, as I was doing, you know, further research. I mean, I listen to like some of your panel discussions that's on YouTube and like the stuff you post. It's always interesting to hear you talk. But I didn't know you had such an extensive dance background. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Dance has been such an important part of my life, an important part of my intellectual formation, interesting enough. I mean, I've been dancing since I was three. Um, I, My mom caught me in front of the TV dancing to a Michael Jackson video, as one does in 1986. Of course, of course. Trying to figure out how to moonwalk and all things. And I was just so mesmerized and straight up like face to the TV screen. And she was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do with this child? And so she put me in dance class. And it was just kind of fun, Dolly Dinkle, not serious at first. And then um, I just kept doing it and kept doing it and then started pre-professional conservatory training um, in middle school and high school and then going on to college and training at the Ailey School and really thinking about the boundaries of blackness and the body and dance was kind of my first um, visual media that I experimented with. And I still bring that to my work today in terms of my scholarship, as well as my curatorial work and my arts writing. And I'm always thinking about, you know, how are bodies moving in space? How are bodies, how are we encountering different objects and how are they um, asking us or demanding certain kinds of um, responses or effects from us as viewers? Um, and also thinking about making, making dances, making exhibitions. They're not all this, all that dissimilar and thinking about how to kind of choreograph space, you know, um, right. whether that's physical or digital. Um, and so, yeah, dance really is still very much a part of my practice now. Ah, that's awesome, yo. So as we started the discussion, um, it's always interesting to hear like scholars, you know, study people such as yourself and to talk about black art because, you know, black art podcast is what we talk about. But I'd like to get your thoughts on how do you define black art when you think about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I well, I well, I, where I'll start with answering this question is, 
similar to my dance background, I forgot to mention, I think I forgot to mention that I, I went to the Ailey School and Fordham University for my BFA and really started thinking about um, different dimensions of Blackness during that time. But before that, um, my, my mother was my first art teacher. She's a visual artist and educator. And um, she's in pre-retirement now. She's been working in HR, human resources, for the last, I'd say, close to 20 years. Um, but she's an artist first and foremost. And her drawings of Black female figures were really my first encounter with Black image making in our home. And um, so she so she was a painter. She's a draw. She draws and paints. Yep. Okay. I, was like, I mean, she really does it all. And when she teaches, she's doing. She's really an incredible educator because she takes like all of these kind of unexpected materials like old cd like compact discs and doing all of these really interesting like abstract geometric that look like paintings but are actually mixed media works and these are with students that are in like sixth through eighth grade or something and she just really sophisticated understanding of materials just by kind of fumbling through and, and learning on her on the fly right and so um that's kind of that kind of improvisational um, approach to making and knowledge production is really a part of what I do in my own work um, and thinking about black art and blackness um, and the boundaries of blackness. And so growing up, you know, and and growing up and thinking about her artwork and how she her own relationship to blackness as a black woman, um, she grew up, you know, in the black arts. She came of age in the black during the black arts movement. And so her um, ideas about blackness um, were, were very much steeped. Um, in that time and and growing me growing up in the 80s and 90s is a very different kind of relationship to that. And so um, she she studied the masters, but she was also interested in making stories and, and um, figures um, and a canon really that, you know, reflected her own experience and identity, um, much like a lot of other kind of black arts movement makers and um, creatives were doing um, and kind of rejecting the Western Western notions of um, artistic production and, and, and aesthetic value. And um, she infused her, you know, her artwork and her parenting with these ideas. And um, when I went to Ailey, I actually started thinking about kind of these aspirational notions or narratives around Blackness and Black achievement and really trying to um, think about what the artists, what Black artists' roles and responsibilities are in times of social and political upheaval. Um, and, you know, which is very kind of relevant to today, right? I mean, we're dealing with all kinds of crises on a regular basis. And I don't yeah. think that these, I don't think these crises and moments of uncertainty are going to go away. <laughs> I think this, I think this really is our, our normal and it's not new. I don't, and I, I don't say new normal, you know, I say it is our normal and it's, it's, um, we just haven't been thinking about it in these terms. And so how I define black art is, is really one in terms of, I like to listen to the artists and they, you know, they self-identify as black artists, then I will take that. I will, I will, um, I will take that seriously. I also think about black art formally, like what kinds of moves are artists making, um, artists of African descent making in terms of pushing the boundaries um, and parameters of what we understand to be blackness as material, blackness as form, blackness as space, blackness as aesthetics, blackness as an object um, to be transformed and, 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 and manipulated. All of those things are at play when I'm when I'm thinking about uh, my own definition of black art. Yeah, I like that, and I think that's the the way that I like to look at it too. Even when I was uh, just finished my MFA, so I took an Afrofuturism class, and that was a big part of defining the Afro part in it, right? 
to see like where it come from and how it can have different meanings in relationship to where you are. So like in Africa, Afrofuturism looks different, feels different than it does for African-Americans uh, here, even if on the West Coast to the East Coast, like it's a completely different way of understanding your position in Blackness and in relationship to what you're creating. Right. So exactly. Uh, yeah. No, there's, I mean, like you said, there's all kinds of environmental forces, geographic, locale, cultural contexts. And I think that, you know, when you're paying, when you're really paying attention to artists' processes of making and their, and the objects, like I firmly believe that political effects exceed artistic intention. That's not to say that I dismiss artistic intention, but I believe that once you put something out in the world, like it takes on a life of its own. Right. Um, and yeah. so, and I think that there's also so much to be gleaned from the work that um, artists of African descent are making in terms of how we understand Blackness intramurally, you know, within our own communities. Um, I'm not really concerned with, you know, other um, a kind of non-Black gays or um, anything like that. And I think that, you know, a lot of our artists of African descent through Afrofuturism are actually challenging, you know, the, that the kind of non-Black gaze has to be the starting point for how we understand Black artistic and cultural production, right? Yeah. Yeah, completely. And I, I like that notion too. And I I love the notion of seeing um, the possibilities and how people conceive of what a future would look like with Black people. Uh, I talk about this in my thesis, separated from whiteness, like just as Blackness as a self-defined thing. And how right. blackness that just it just is it simply exists exactly right? exactly yeah. and I think that's uh, in its purest form I think that's what Afrofuture you know it's funny we getting into this Afrofuture as a conversation but <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's exactly and I'm like, I think, we're jumping right in let's yeah, go yeah, to the future <laughs> <laughs> but I but I think uh, and I, I think it has more to do with where I am like in my mind and how I'm conceiving of my own work is in terms of separating it from whiteness and all these other outside influences in becoming self-defined and so i ask you like what do you what do you see happening out um in the world because i think i see a lot of that me i got to that mind state during the pandemic and i think a lot of people have got to that mind state during the pandemic and trying and when they had time to separate themselves right from the outside world the rigmarole like the 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 hamster wheel of life and just sit down and really think about what they really want to do. And and only the big time artists ever get that opportunity to do that most of the time. That's so true. That's so true. Time is time and space to think and breathe is such a valuable resource. Wow. Um, it's interesting. Like, I want to one kind of <laughs> state my position as, as it relates to Afrofuturism um, and how I got into that work is through writing on um, Kenyan-born artist Wangeshi Mutu's um, collage practice. And oh, I love her work, um, yeah. at the time, this is almost 10 years ago at this point that I started um, writing on her. And I first encountered her work at the Corcoran Gallery in the 30 American show. Um, and so one, you know, her being an African-born artist included in a show about African-American art was interesting to me and thinking about, you know, what are the, like, what are the distinctions between an African Blackness and an, an American Blackness? And she even talks about this in an episode, in an, um, in an interview with um, the late curator Oakley and Mazur, um, and thinking about like how her, her formation, uh, her identity formation as, as, as Kenyan is so different than how we think of um, African-Americanness 
and she she, she talks about the slave narrative and um, as being a kind of defining genre uh, within uh, not only American literature but African American identity politics, right? And I think that you know, in terms of Afrofuturism, there's an interesting. I love that you that you said you know what is the Afro and Afrofuturism that that was a question for you that you've been kind of ruminating on and, and coming to your own conclusions about and it's something that I think deeply about as well and thinking about how the Afro is taken up differently understood differently conceived of differently in these different um, geographic locations and Wangeshi's work really got me to think deeply about those things um, in terms of how she's breaking up the figure breaking up the tenets of even figuration and how figuration has been so deeply tied to African-American art practice um, and how she offers, in my analysis, something something different and something maybe even a little um, unexpected, counterintuitive, undesirable, dark. Um, and so my um, writing on Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism has always kind of been at that at that place of like, you know, is the Afro is the is the future always positive? And it's something that I bring into my classroom too. My students are are um, in classes like Afrofuture Females, which is a class that I taught during the pandemic, um, and um, Black Art and Activism in the Digital Age, we have a, an Afrofuturism unit. Um, and thinking about, you know, what's possible, what's next, and is it always, is it always productive? Is it always generative? Like, what, you know, what is this tyranny? Like, is there a way in which thinking about the future becomes a kind of tyrannical practice that we should try mm -hmm. to? separate ourselves from right and think differently right. and, and and in that space in that critical distance perhaps new possibilities emerge there right um and so my relationship to afrofuturism as a discourse and as a as a cultural movement and even as a as a kind of aesthetic or design practice has always been there and thinking about um you know is reckoning and reparation possible is it something that we even desire as black people um is it something that we should be desiring um given you know the ways in which we're we're still so circumscribed by anti-black violence on a daily basis and so given that kind of tension between uh kind of afrofuturism and kind of thinking about black futurity on the one hand and also the kind of um the dangers um and violences that we that are wrapped up in anti-blackness that um kind of you know still invade our our everyday existence and so how do we deal with that, you know, that kind of schizophrenia, really and truly, as Black people? Um, and so, I kind of trouble, I kind of, you know, try to shake up the Afrofuturism discourse and, and and not just be like, oh, this is about imagining Black people in the future. It's like, okay, well, Black people will likely always exist because the world needs us um, for for good, for better, and for worse, right? Um, and Fanon, you know, Franz Fanon talks about that kind of conundrum of being needed. Other black um, uh, scholars also think of, uh, think about that, especially black feminist theorists, and thinking about you know if the world. Like Horton Spiller says you know if my country needs me, and if I didn't exist, I would have been invented, right? And so right. Yeah. that that kind of again just that kind of tension, like where do we where do we go with that, and what does that um, offer us in terms of how we think about the world and our 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 our, um, our existence within it, I guess. Yeah, and I think it, it it has a lot to do with, um, in a lot of ways, Afrofuturism could be a response to the present, right? And mm -hmm. either it's the need for some kind of escapism or yeah. the need to create another space. One, Wangechi's work is interesting because 
I think she's more on the side of creating another space because mm-hmm. it's so surreal, like the environments that she puts her people in, like it's, you know, all these really collage textured um, bodies, you know, in quotes, you know what I'm saying? Because it's a lot of like parts exactly, and like disparate, right. disparate yeah, like uh, what legs kind of and, yeah, and, yeah, she, and that kind of thing. Plant or the, yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. And it's kind of, it, it has a weird kind of cellular kind of uh, thing that goes on in the environment sometimes where it's mm-hmm. just kind of like a haze. It's kind of like a, uh, it's definitely another place, right? And I think I like like the, that in terms of you're basically creating somewhere else for you to go. Mm-hmm. And and I don't want to think of it in terms of pure escapism because it's not, um, it's not escape as in I'm trying to get away and, you know, from where I am, it's more just a, to have a place of rest. You know what I'm saying, or or place right. to to aspire to to see yourself. I think that's right. a, a, the interesting thing of how how people take it. For years, I took it that way. For years, I took it as like um, I'm not gonna leave. Like you know, I said that to myself. Like before, I, I as a, a barrier for me to get into kind of the new work that I'm doing. It's like I'm not gonna try to go somewhere else when the problem is here, and I'm gonna face the problem head on. So my work was really. Um, super political like propaganda like style like things directly referencing specific events and and you know the commentary was so spot on but i think when Getchy and a lot of people that operate in that vein are doing the same aggressive pushback but in a very different way and it yeah. took me a while to be able to to see it as that yeah no i love that you're thinking that you're picking up on the ways in which Getchy is kind of um proffering a new kind of politics um, or even ethics of representation, right? And then yeah. the, that note about propaganda, I, I immediately think of um, W.E.B. Du Bois's um, speech turned crisis article, um, The Criteria of Negro Art. Mm-hmm. Where he talks that mm-hmm. art is and ever must be propaganda. It's right. just such a great, it's just such a great, striking, forceful statement. And um, it's, it, I mean, one of the things about the definition going back to your question about definition of black art is like you know is black art inherently and or inevitably always already political because of the ways in which blackness and black bodies have been politicized right and right. so that's something that i think a lot about in my own work and i don't necessarily have a question for that i mean an answer to that but i think that even open-ended questions are generative spaces as you said to kind of go elsewhere and be otherwise um as intellectuals as creatives as you know um, as makers, critics, scholars, educators, whatever. Um, and I love that, you know, thinking about Wangeshi's work as a space of, other, of, of otherwise and elsewhere um, is really is really interesting to me and, and definitely resonates with how I think about her work, especially in terms of the environments and landscapes that, you, that um, you're pointing out that she, that she crafts for us as viewers. Because she also, you know, those landscapes are populated with often blood spatter, dismembered bodies, things that are floating, that are untethered and suspended in space. Um, There's a lot of fungi in her work and, you know, fungi, you know, mushrooms, fungi, it's a bacteria, right? It's, 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 it's a Mm. growth, but it's a growth that is kind of, you know, born from undesirable, um, undesirable conditions, right? Whether that's shady environments or, um, you know, arising from bacterial or like, you know, um, parasite host relationships. So she's really figuring all of that for us. And so when I first started writing about her work and, you know, saw that people were taking her up in this kind of really celebratory way, 
um, in relationship to Afrofuturism. I'm like, yeah, but there's so much like dis dysfunction <laughs> in her work. So how do <laughs> right. we get like how do we get? I mean, we can celebrate that there's dysfunction, and that's calling us to a particular kind of knowing and being. I'm here for that. But I but but the kinds of celebrations of her work that I um, first started reading about when I started working on her was were kind of um, overlooking that aspect of her work. And I just thought that that was doing the work a real disservice because I think it's, it is incredibly generative to, to be in that space, to be like, okay, these are the conditions. Now what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, there's a emotionality to her work too, that I, that I, that I like. Um, I think of it in terms of when you think about, excuse me, when you think about the future, it could be like Star Trek or alien, right? It can be, like super crisp and clean, mm -hmm. everything is great. Um, there's an artist, uh, Lost Lost in the Island. Is that her name? She goes by like this name, Lost in the Island. She makes these like collages of like black people with like spaceship head heads, like UFO mm -hmm. with, like hats and stuff like that, and like really okay. bright, really colorful, really like abstract. Thinking about the future, seeing us in different environments. Um, yeah. I see that as more of a bright, shiny optimism. Right. But I see Wangechi's as more emotional in terms of how she is dealing with the present trauma or or her life experience. And that is translated into her vision of the future. Like right. what's the name? What's the name of the video she had where it was like uh this big black thing that was consuming? Yeah. Um, the end it, of, I think it was called the end of eating everything. Yeah, they, yeah there you go. Yeah, that yeah. that one. Like it, I think of that one as as being way more emotional sense of another yeah. place like a surreal um journey that you go into and i think you, you need to go and and be able to explore these different dimensions like of yeah. existence and i think her, her work hints at that a lot and uh you know she's one of my favorites like absolutely and just 100%. in terms of just in terms of her uh this is less about afrofuturism more about the practice the actual painting and the actual sets of images that she's putting together in her collages like they're fascinating like the, the level of, of depth and detail and, and color, like everything about her work is like, it's, it's magnificent. And then she yeah. switched it up and started doing sculptures. So it's like, <laughs> you know, the girl's unstoppable. You know I know, I mean? exactly. It's new terrain. Yeah, I love um, it. She, you know, she was trained as a sculptor, actually. She got her MFA in sculpture at, um, at, at Yale. And so oh, did she? She oh, did. See, I, so, I didn't know that. I, mm -hmm. I've, only, I've only been exploring her, the really large... Um, I went to a museum in Nashville. They had like the really large like collages, paintings that she mm -hmm. has of the of the of the women, like in all these different like little islands that are floating. And like that's that's the work I know mm -hmm. from. I I I didn't know she was a, in sculpture. That's yeah. Well, I mean, she's most so she's most known for her collage work, and that's also what I I write I write on as well. I mean, I've seen her some of her sculptures, but um i'm i'm most interested in her collage work because of how we think of collage within the kind of art historical tradition that it's kind of birthing a new bringing these disparate things together births a new kind of consciousness or even political consciousness in the world in these yeah. times of, of upheaval right so like collage really became prominent in the early at the turn of the 20th century in european avant-garde circles but also thinking about how Romare Bearden was using it as a way to think about the social responsibility of African-American artists during the civil rights movement and after. Um, and so collage has really been kind of attached to um, or has kind of bubbled up in these different spaces uh, uh, 
my kind of um, minoritarian, as a kind of minoritarian aesthetic practice for people who were either relegated to the margins or thought of as others or feel or trying to deal with, like you said, kind of rupture and um, trauma, whether that trauma was from war or other kinds of insurgencies, right? And yeah. so um, that's what I'm most, that's why I'm drawn to her work. And I also, when I first saw her work, it was, it was, it was vis-a-vis collage. And I think that was back in like 2008. And then I saw her work again in, in that 2011 um, 30 American show, but, um, or at the Corcoran, at the installation at the Corcoran. But um, her sculpture is, is really fascinating um, and thinking about that kind of, those, the ways in which she's using surface in her collage work versus how she's using it in sculpture. Um, right. And I don't really have much to, to say beyond that um, in terms of her sculpture, but she did stop, she did um, get her MFA, I think it was in 2001 from Yale in sculpture. And she also has studied anthropology. And um, if my research serves me correctly, she kind of moved away from sculpture because of how um, the market at the time, the art market and, and collectors were kind of um, forcing these narratives about African primitivism um, and these, mm. these kinds of kitschy sculptures that people were collecting and like outsider art and all these kinds of, you know, just things that are that that have been um, antithetical and or antagonistic to, to um, or seen as antagonistic to quote unquote fine art. So she basically was like, well, I can do y'all shit too, and did, <laughs> and started doing collage um, and, and killed it, right? Like, yeah. that's, I mean, for the last like 20 years, she's just been killing it. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm in awe of her trajectory and her career and how thoughtful she is really, like you said, you can see the, the thoughtfulness that she puts into her work through that, that level of detail and depth that you, that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I think she's she her work is is one of those revelations when you see it, right? Because yeah. I mean, a lot of people are making a lot of art or a lot of things that we call art, right? Yeah, and, yeah, that part. <laughs> and but you know, it. I'm always looking for that one piece, that one thing that breaks through. You know, what I'm saying I want it, I want that in my work, and I would look for it like when I see other people work, and I think she's one of the people. Um, similarly, I. Mary Sabande, do you know her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like similarly, her work does the same thing to me in a much different yeah. way, though. But I think she's conceiving very different narratives, and to me, they feel futuristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I don't know if she would call herself a, a Afrofuturist, but mm-hmm. I see her envisioning a different world, a vision, a different narrative um, that she's giving these like black women, black people command of like the red dogs what's the name of the piece right now i think is the name of it where it's like her and she's like these sculpted red dogs and, and yeah. being sent to she's like um i don't know if she's summoning them or sending them away like sicking them on somebody but mm-hmm. it's like you know giving the, giving these black people kind of this uh ethereal quality where they're demanding yeah. and commanding like these outside forces just by sheer will almost so i i think it's um I think that thread is is in a lot of people's work, but they, they those two um, come to mind immediately when I think of it. Yeah, no, Mary Sabindi's work is um, really fascinating, and I think that you're right in terms of going back to what you were saying about Wangeshi's work at scale, like in, and how she's playing with scale, and how you saw these kinds of larger scale um, works by her. Um, Mary's doing similar kinds of work around monumentality, right? Like her figures right. are so yeah. um, large and kind of towering and 
um, loom, they literally loom over you, right? And that kind of experience as a viewer is what I'm interested, like you said, those kinds of affective qualities to the work that like, oh, like this person, like this, this sculpture is, is really encroaching not only into, in the exhibition space, but also in, onto, in my space as a viewer, right? And, and that demands something else for me. It demands a, a different kind of engagement with the work as a viewer, right? Just yeah. by, yeah. She, like, by, just by sheer scale, like it's an intervention in that way, right? Um, yeah. And I, I have to say that um, I was at um, the the Havana Biennial, gosh, two years ago. COVID has my time all me messed up, so I think it was two, oh, yeah. two, two April's ago, <laughs> April twenty nineteen, I believe it was. Um, and she had a virtual reality work in an exhibition there, and I was mm. like, oh my, it was amazing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I will that's play, crazy. I will listen, I will play your video, whatever you want me, girl. I'm like, I am, I am hooked. She's amazing. So I don't, yeah. again, I don't like you. I don't know if she would, if she would identify as an Afrofuturist, but her work is definitely in relationship to those ideas. Oh, for sure. And and one last thing about her is like uh, space, like the way it, the dynamics um, compositionally move you through space because the. You know, her figures they usually have on these really big outfits. Like the outfits are like outstretching and going up the wall or like um, you know, interacting right. with uh creating other lines. The dogs are coming out, you know, fifteen, twenty feet away from the main figure, you know. Like so it's it's so much going on. I think that kind of dynamic range, I think is what's necessary too. Cause in a lot of art that you see, it feels so small, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh and, but I and think even, something else that they both share is that um in terms formally anyway is that they how they how they kind of rethink or at least um compose new figures that um kind of push out our ideas of what black women's reproductive capacities can and should be mm -hmm. um in terms of the body in terms of art making whatever right and that's something that i i'm, I'm very interested in in my own work um and currently writing on and you know, um, well, I guess she does it, does it quite literally in terms of um, uh, crafting multiple birth scenes for us um, through different, um, in her different collages. And these birth scenes can be, you know, quite grotesque and even gruesome. Um, and then for, for Mary's work, it's like the conversations, she's kind of prompting conversations around class and labor. Um, through the kind of costuming that she's dressing her her monumental sculptures in, and thinking about you know the domestic servant um, and black and black women as domestic servants that then also kind of tower and loom over you and have this literal physical power over their space like the demand the commands of their space right yeah. Um, yeah and so yeah I think both of those artists are really doing interesting things when it when it comes to um, thinking about black women's reproductive capacities. This is Steve Prince, printmaker, and you're listening to Studio Noise. I want to get into a little bit because uh, you, you mentioned a class, you know, Afrofuture Females, is that what you mm -hmm. name of the class? Like, um, I think women are doing some really interesting work in this space. And I don't know if it's uh, just a, a focus or or 
it's just the ability for women to cooperate. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right word either, but the, the way women are organizing themselves now, like even in the present, not talking about futurism, but even in the present, the way they're creating these groups um, that are aiding and assisting each other. And, and the way that I, in, in terms of the artists that I interact with, the way I see the women getting together, I think is a fascinating thing. So tell me a little bit about what you're thinking when you have your Afrofutures female class, like the, the role that women are playing in the space. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you said that. So one of the um, reasons I even developed that class, which I've been teaching that class for probably five years in different institutions. And um, it started off as a gender women studies, gender women sexuality studies class. Um, and so, and I wanted to really think about Afrofuturism as a kind of black feminist theorizing through that class. Um, and um, so the class has really developed to really hold both of those things in tandem with one another, which is um, writing and discourses about Afrofuturism and Black futurity and Black feminist thought and theory. Um, and so students get deep dives into both of those archives of literature um, on Afrofuturism and Black feminist thought and theory. And then they have to make connections between the two. And I'm um, so one of the things that I've noticed since developing that class, which I should say that the title for the class, Afrofuture Females, is a um, is taken from the title of a collection that was edited by um, S. Marlene Barr, Marlene S. Barr. I always get the um, the placement of the S um, wrong, but um, and really thinking about how black black women authors were in were writing speculative and science fiction and not being recognized for it and i, I can't remember when this um the anthology was published but i think it was in the 90s um yeah. not i think i know it was in the 90s i just don't know when yeah. um but um i can't remember when i mean and i just like i was like yo and even still like as much as i talk about i'm, I'm asked to and invited to talk about afrofuturism moderate panels about afrofuturism gender equity in those spaces is still very much a work in progress, <laughs> to put it kindly, <laughs> uh, to put it di diplomatically. Um, and it's just something that I think about on a regular basis, because I'm like, there are so, like you said, there are so many Black women practitioners out here doing this work and have been doing this work for the last 100 plus years, just as W.E.B. Du Bois gets kind of backdated as an Afrofuturist. There, I mean, Phyllis Wheatley, like, you know, there's all of these other figures, Phyllis Wheatley, Ida B. Well, like so many figures um, in their either activist work or even just in their kind of um, writing and art making um, and policy work, to be honest, um, that are that are really driving a driving force for this discourse. And it's just they are still weirdly, I wouldn't say left out, but marginalized in ways that I'm uncomfortable with. And so I teach this class to kind of amplify black women's voices in these spaces um more broadly in the academy but specifically within the discourse about afrofuturism to kind of say like yo like they need as much recognition as all these other thinkers that y'all are you know that y'all are big enough in these spaces so um in terms of my aims for that course and what i try to teach my students in that course is one about gender parity and equity and then um black gender parity and equity um, in the academy and in um, even curatorial work in, in professional spaces of, of practice and making um, and how they might be able to, one, have an analysis of it at the very least, 
uh, a sophisticated analysis of it, let's be clear. And then two, might make different choices um, about how they wanna fashion their own kinds of um, spaces in the world going forward from my class. Yeah, that's great. Um, you did a talk with um, Sheree Renee Thomas and in it, she asked the question, um, if you're not being published, are you writing? Right. And I think that's that was a, a very interesting thought about how we see who is writing about the work and who is really writing about the work. And right. and she talked about who controls the publishing. And that right. that that is a the a big factor in who gets to be heard. And not that they aren't writing and not that they aren't making the work, but they aren't weren't given permission to uh, be in the space or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just yeah. a, the way that um, outside forces can constrict uh, black activity, and yeah. you know what I'm saying, in, in that kind of way. So I, I like, exactly. I love that well, idea. It's, it's, I mean, Sheree Renee Thomas, her analysis of power is so lit. I'm like, she's <laughs> such an amazing. I just love yeah, her. Yeah, she's I great. Think she's yeah, such an amazing thinker, and she just and she's one of those people who's been like, we've been out here doing the work for 20 plus years. Like we've been out here. So yeah, exactly, don't, yeah. say, don't say that we don't exist. You just didn't know or you wasn't trying to pay attention to us. That doesn't mean we weren't out here doing our thing and out here breaking new ground and like, you know. Um, and so I really appreciate that she's constantly pushing back on these narratives that like, no, we weren't absent. Y'all just weren't giving us our flowers. Different, very different. And that's and that's not to say that she's she's, you know, motivated toward gaining that kind of recognition. She's like, Y'all can stay in y'all little spaces over there too. We still have our stuff over here and it's still thriving and we're good, you know? Yeah. Like, so I really appreciate her as a model for how to do this work in these spaces that again, are often are often marginalized, pushed to the side, dismissed, but are actually very um, vibrant, dynamic and um, generative spaces um, that, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, we should be paying more attention to. On the other hand, I'm like, let them be and just let them thrive and grow and flourish without um because you know with recognition and visibility also comes the threat of discipline mm. um and violence and mm. um and i you know i want to avoid those things at all costs so i often put artists who are quote unquote lesser known i don't identify i don't categorize them as that i just put them on the syllabus and i let the students do whatever they do with them um, and I guide their, you know, guide their thinking, but like, I don't distinguish between like, oh, Wangeshi is very famous and mm, homeboy down the, you know, <laughs> my, my neighbor over there yeah. across the street, she's out yeah. here doing great work too. And, and I just put them together. I don't make any distinction. Like, I'm not like, oh, my neighbor is of course like a minor artist or lesser known or lesser than whatever. I'm just like, they're all in the, like, are there thematic resonances? Are there conceptual resonances? Like, what is the work? really demanding of you as as viewers and as as learners versus like these kind of hierarchies that I think are so normative and normalized within the academy and in the art world for that matter. Yeah, I mean I think it's I definitely think it's in the art world too because it it is um it becomes about popularity after a while. Like when you do think about certain people in certain places, not when I, I not to want to say I was when you do think about certain places, you think about certain people. And if you're not curious enough or or active enough in your imagination, that those will be the only people you ever look for. So it's not That's that right. like not that um, Fahamo Piku is from Atlanta, lives here. Uh, he isn't the only Atlanta artist, but he shows up in a lot of places because his name 
it, one, his work is amazing. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to Fahamu. But mm-hmm. uh, but he is what people think about and they never get to the second, third tier of people from Atlanta that are doing excellent work as well. And, you know, right. and, they, and, and, and a lot of times, especially as an artist, I'll speak to it as an artist. Uh, it's, it's an emotional thing, right? To put your, to put all this time and effort into this work and then oh, yeah, not be appreciated. And so, yeah, exactly. Being an artist. Oh yeah. I, I love that radical vulnerability. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> but yeah, but that's the type of thing where like I understand the emotion that goes in behind it. And it's hard not to be disappointed when you spend a year making a body of work and it doesn't get uh, mm-hmm. the same recognition as, you know, Fahamu scribbling on a napkin. But, you know, right. but you like, but the time, that's his time. That's his right. energy and his place. And you do have to separate yourself from the context sometimes and give your work its own validation. And right. it's very hard to do a lot of the times because, you know, so many names of, of artists out there that, um, like I said, so much, so many things are being made and called art that it's hard to keep up with it. Like yeah. sometimes, especially when you get um, inundated with it and, it's all controlled by the algorithms, <laughs> you know, like right. that's my, that's my big thing now is that, no. that, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's cool to have everything available to you on Instagram, but Instagram is also an algorithm that is determinative of how much time you spend on the app, which has exactly. nothing to do with the value of art at all. So exactly. even, the, even the things and we that know, we know, these, these, you know, Sophia Noble's work, that algorithms are oppressive and exactly. they're born yeah, from the same sure. kind of structural violences that all of these systems and and and, and um, industries and organizations, you know, that kind of <laughs> order our lives are also born from, you know, like they can't be, we can't separate those things. Um, yeah. 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 And I think it's great that, that people are out there and thinking about things outside of it. It's hard to, it's hard to separate yourself from it a lot of times because it seems like, all right, if I'm going to be a successful artist, I got to, get on social media. I got to have my Instagram, I need, you know, X and number of followers, but, uh, and it's hard to conceive a world outside of that because it's so prevalent and it's being like forced on you everywhere you go. Like even in the news, they got the Instagram names of the anchors, like in the names, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't know. You have to, you have to create a space for yourself. Uh, you have to conceive of it differently. Like why, while you're working yeah, in no, your studio. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like your commitment, as an artist to yourself and your work has to be unrelenting, like unflinching, you know, and, you know, going like, okay, I'm going to go to my studio at least 30, like for me as a writer, as a, as an academic, I write for at least 30 minutes every day because I care about my own work and like my own voice and what I have to say in the world. Now, will my book be published? We that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I, have a, I have a good feeling that it will, but like, do you stop doing the work just be, again? Like going back to what Cherie Renee Thomas said, like, do you stop doing the or, or does the work not exist just because it wasn't published? Yeah. Like because yeah. NYU Press or Columbia University Press or whoever, like whatever top tier press people aspire to um, be recognized by, Duke University Press, Harper's Bazaar. I mean, like all you know, there's the, the publication also you know publication industry has its own hierarchies, right? Um, and so I think that um, one thing that came to mind while you were talking about Fahamu is that um, you're you're absolutely right. And I think that's something that he also is interested in kind of um, challenging. And so he's been, you know, he's been using his own platform to really highlight other artists, um, which I think is great. I think that more artists 
who have platforms to do so can and should do that right and not and not just be like well the spotlight is on me so i'm gonna just i'm gonna just stay here and like yeah. sweat it yeah. out in the yeah. light <laughs> like no i'm gonna bring <laughs> other people with me like i'm or and or i'm gonna I'm make new lights i'm gonna make new spotlights i'm gonna make, make new stages because i want us all to win right i want to there's enough for us to all eat so let's do it you know um Absolutely. and um i think that it, also being in Atlanta, you know, it used to be that, you know, New York or Paris or even LA at moments has been, you know, these kinds of quote unquote art meccas. Um, and I think New York still does occupy it just because of the sheer number of galleries that exist there and, and museums. But I think there's been a real shift toward looking at smaller and mid-sized cities and the art scenes there and the art and cultivating artist networks in those, like you, you mentioned Nashville, there's Memphis, St. Louis, Atlanta, um, even Across Oklahoma the City and Tulsa where I grew up, um, and Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, you know, all of these, and not, mind you, chocolate cities, let's not forget. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. 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 Um, and so yeah, I think that's, that's right. really exciting and thinking about, you know, where, where, where quote unquote black art might be going. Um, I definitely think that cultivating Houston, Dallas, all of these smaller cities that are one where the cost of living is much lower and so much more livable. Um, but and but also like artists like Delita Martin, who's like out in the cut in the, you know, in the south, <laughs> yeah. southeastern she Texas, there, yeah. and just out here with her whole, I mean, she's like, I she has a like a whole compound. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like, like you said, you have to really just commit, you just have to be about your own work. And you gotta be, you gotta, like you said, validate yourself, big up yourself. And you know, if it's good, people will come. And that's something that I, I take with me all the time. I was in conversation um, with Kevin Young, who's um, the new director at the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture um, a few years ago um, in an, uh, a journal issue about Jay-Z. And going to your, um, your, your um, comment about, you know, is it art or is it content? And thinking about you know all these things that are being produced that we call art or that some people call art but might be something else <laughs> might just be content <laughs> yeah. um and kevin in that interview was on he was like but is it good <laughs> and i just love i just love that it's just so simple it's like but is it good yeah yeah and if you can yeah. if it's a no or it's a maybe then it's a no you know like <laughs> if it's, a, it's a move on and let that go you know yeah um, so I think that, you know, sticking to your craft and honing it and like you said, staying curious um, and making sure to continue to to just push yourself to new heights. You know, it's a really, like you said, very vulnerable and very self-motivating work um, being an artist um, and just being basically a black person in the world, to be quite honest. Cause... Oh, no. Yeah, that's that's on top of it, you know, on, exactly. top, of, on top of being extra sensitive and, and, <laughs> and want to do stuff. Man, you got to be black, too. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Cause, um, one, one thing it, I want to add to what you were saying is you also have to know or be comfortable with the fact that it might take time. Right. Mm -hmm that you yes. might have to be making your work for 10 years without recognition in order to get there. Like some, you know, some people are skyrocket to the top, you know, Jordan Castile and, um, you know, people like that. And yeah. they'll, they, they not, that's not discrediting the work that they did, right. but I'm just saying right. that at, at 30, she's on the cover of Vogue and, uh, you know, full prof professorship at uh, the school she teaches at. So mm -hmm. like, you know, like, you know, that's not going to be everybody's story. Like that's right. not, 
It's just not. And it's not enough room for everybody to have the same story. So you got to be comfortable with maybe it might take you, you know what I'm saying, 10 years, 20 years to do it. Maybe you'll be Doc's Thrash, right? Where he created a, a whole thing and wasn't really recognized during his lifetime. Right. But you know, afterwards, he got recognition at the high. Like, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird thing that we have to 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 live with, deal with, and argue about um, our yeah. place. You I'm know what so I'm saying? In the, the canon. Because I did not know his work until I saw um, a show of, of African-American art at the Allentown Art Museum, of all places, Allentown, PA. Okay. Um, and his printmaking is incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, he was a he was a master. He created his own technique. Yeah, like, I, like, no, I, I can imagine like, that. Oh my God, like so skillful and just beautifully sensuous work that you're like, damn. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's like arresting. I stood in front of his piece, like, and just was like, wow, like how, how, yeah. how. <laughs> I, I think I think of that all the time. Like when I saw it, it's like, all right, this work is overwhelmingly beautiful by any measure objective measure that you can have for what a work can be is yeah. overwhelmingly beautiful how yeah. did he and you have to wrestle with this how did he not get recognition right for doing this like you know, like it's, it's it's just one of those incredible things that you just do you, you you can't reconcile it there's no right answer for it it's just yeah. that it wasn't his time that's his story and you know you got to be you got to be good with that sometimes right which means he but, was ahead of his time to be you know, to be yeah, quite for, honest. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah. I mean, if you think about people like Amy Sherrill, like, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. who toiling in her studio and then just had a tipping point, you know, it's like Malcolm Gladwell's that, that book, The Tipping Point. It's like, you know, it just, like you said, the tipping point is not always immediate, but it'll happen. It just, you just got to stay committed, keep doing the work and asking yourself, but is it good, you know, and staying in yeah. conversation and like letting other people see it so that you're growing and, 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 and pushing the work to new, to new places. Yeah. Yeah. And you, as a curator, you, you kind of get to go and do the same thing, right? You, um, exactly. you curated as they were curating the end of the world. Um, and, uh, and other stuff that you've done, tell us, um, like what are your thought process that goes into you looking for selecting artists uh, for particular projects, maybe it's project focus, or maybe you have an eye that gives you a thought for something. Like, let me tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, when I am designing and making exhibitions, they there's two ways that that that, that happens. I either get a commission and have a, a theme, a, a broad theme that I'm already thinking about, or it's I guess it's more like three ways it could happen. Or it's something that arises from my research, which is kind of related to the first thing that I said about thematic or conceptual kind of framework um, or idea. And then the third is in, in close collaboration and conversation with artists. I'm constantly doing artist studio visits. I love studio visits. They are one of my favorite things to do because I just love talking to artists and hearing how they are solving. Like artists are problem solvers. They are constantly thinking about the world and the like the like the various uh ills of the world as yeah. design problems right yeah. and so um and that could be a design problem that's within the canon itself within art history it could be a design problem that's like based in materials um or supports or you know just the the the, the tools and um uh 
materials that are available to artists to make work. Um, so they might have to, you know, revolutionize that. Um, but I'm just constantly in awe of how artists are thinking about solving certain problems. And so I love to be in conversation with them. And so out of conversations that I will have an idea and be like, oh, snap. And then I'll, I will think about other artists that I'm like, oh, they actually have something that's running through their work that relates to this thing that I was thinking about from this other artist. And what if I was to put them in a group show together and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so that's just kind of how my, how my, um, my thoughts kind of spiral from there, especially with com in conversation with artists. There are also kind of research ideas that I'm thinking about that I'm like, ooh, I'm tripping over that thing. I want to investigate that more. Mm, yeah. um, and then going back, and then the conceptual stuff is just like, ooh, that's cool, or that's something that I thought about, or like, again, a kind of, I'm always thinking about limits and possibilities um, in the various disciplines that I traffic in, in the various spaces that I traffic in, um, in the various ideas that come to mind. So, um, and the various ideas that I'm listening to others kind of grapple with too, right? And so um, that's really where my curatorial practice is. It's a very kind of richly conceptual, practice that is also that is at the same time grounded in um very real and material um conditions and conversations with artists um that are just in their studios trying to figure shit out what's been your favorite studio visit that you've been on oh my gosh such a good question oh there's so many okay so i will give you i'll give you three okay um, which the first one isn't really a studio visit it was more like um, I was studio manager for Edgar Arsenault, who's a Los Angeles based artist who you may or may not know. He also draws and say the name again, Edgar Arsenault. Edgar Arsenault. Okay. So he and Wangeshi have, um, a, a, a gallerist in common in LA. And at one point they had been in conversation for years, trying to figure out how to do a collaborative project. And at the time that it came, that it finally came to fruition for them to do a collaborative site specific installation. It was um, at the time when I was studio managing for Edgar. And so I got to fly out to Santa Fe and hang out with Wangeshi at Fangirl all oh, over wow. the place. Yes. And be in the museum space while they're um, at Site Santa Fe while they were working on this, on the installation. And it was truly site specific. Like they were working in real time, figuring out the limp, like, oh, oh, we, we brought, we flew this material in, but this ain't actually going to work. We're going to have to go to the hardware store to do this, that, and that, like, you know, just really on the ground improvisational stuff, responding yeah. to the space and the site. Um, and that's something that I kind of uh, got interested in through my work with public art um, uh, administration and curatorial work when I was living in LA, which is how Edgar and I met. So that's one. That wasn't really a studio visit, but like, it's a highlight. It's a highlight. That's um, an experience, then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, a, it was totally an experience. And it was in Santa Fe, which is like very majestic. And like you said, like just having the time and space to really like, just like, like, just, just like sit in the work, you know, and sit in the ideas that we're, that we're trying to bring to fruition and just like problem solve, um, which was really, it was really uh, just a really incredible experience. And then, um, doing a studio visit with Peter Williams, which ties to my also studio visit with, with Ruck recently, um, because I, I kidnapped Ruck from the studio because he was like, oh yeah, I'm in New York for two two months and you know I haven't really been doing anything. I've just been going from my apartment to the studio. I'm like, you're in New York City for two months, really? We're going to see some art. What are you doing? So I kidnapped him and took him to 
Peter Williams show. And so Peter Williams just won a Guggenheim Award, finally getting his flowers after. Again. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Incredible painter. Yeah. Doing really interesting things with like racial satire, blackness, um, painting as form, painting as as tradition, um, just really a color line, just super interesting. Um, and thinking about how as how he as a disabled body, um, one makes work in the studio, and two brings that um, that experience to his work in the actual um, imagery that he's that he's making. Um, right. And he's working at a, and he works at large scale, and he's wheelchair bound, and so it's really. That was a, a really incredible um, studio visit because I had I had put his work in an exhibition that I curated that I um, curated as part of a curatorial fellowship that I had at the Delaware Art Museum um, back in 2016, and it was a show about dark humor and how artists of African descent at the turn of the 21st century were kind of using or subverting um, using subversive humor to to deal with the fact that um, these ideas about these racist ideas about blackness and its potential um, persisted um, when we were supposed to have solved the problem of the color line, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and so I was really interested in how this kind of cohort of artists from all over were really um, all over the U.S. were really dealing with this these issues in their work. So Michael Ray Charles was in that show, David Hammonds, which is actually an early. So it was actually from 1970s to um, the early early 20, early 2000s of that span. But like mm -hmm. David Hammonds was kind of like, oh, progenitor, like, OK, this is like early Camille Billups, same um, Joyce Scott, Joyce um, J. Scott and Peter Williams was in that show and his um, uh, 1997 piece. Um, of course, I'm forgetting the name, the title of it now, but was an anchor for the show. And it was it was it was kind of like a self portrait, but not really. Um, but it was a, it was the anchor for the show. And I um, got to meet him through that process, but hadn't done a studio visit with him yet. And so he and I were both at the University of Delaware. He has since retired and gone on to greater things. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, it was really amazing to be able to do a studio visit years after, you know, years after I had included him in the show and we had been in conversation and um, over that span of time, and then me getting my position at the University of Delaware, him retiring, and just him being able to, again, take that space and really sink in and dive in and really dig into his practice. Um, and so when I went to visit Ruck in his studio in, in New York, um, as part of the IS, ISCP residency, Peter's show at Freight and Volume happened to be up. And, you know, they have a Detroit connection, Peter mm -hmm. and, and Ruck, because Peter um, taught at Wayne State before going to the University of Delaware and had a really hard time in the art world, um, in the art scene in Detroit um, in the 80s and 90s when he was teaching at Wayne State. Um, and so it was just such a full circle moment for me to be like, oh, snap, let's go see the show. And we made it like five minutes before the gallery closed. It was so funny. <laughs> the work, the work is, it was just so, it's just so rich, Peter. And so being able to see works in progress in his studio and how he works, um, it's just truly fascinating. He's such a brilliant, just and also just like generous, sweet person. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love studio visits, yo. <laughs> they go see what people working on. Mm -hmm. It gives you a good opportunity to really understand them too. Uh, yeah. Because you do get to get that kind of behind the scenes, like to look at. You know, some people may not notice it, but to look at the colors that's on the palette. You know what I'm saying? Or like how things are 
hung on the wall when they're right. working on them. Like it, like it's this small exactly. stuff like that that I pay a, a big a, a lot of attention to, especially as an artist. But I'm sure you see like a lot of different stuff too. No, absolutely. And I love that, you know, like you said, like you get to see how people are mixing colors, how they're propping their canvases, like how they're stretching their canvases, what how they're doing whatever. I have a um there's an artist in Philly, a Haitian born artist who lives in Philly, Clay's Gabriel, who's amazing and makes these um masks by manipulating the support of the canvas that he's and he wraps it himself into these shapes that resemble African masks. Um, and so they are um, they are kind of situated between painting and sculpture because it's clearly just canvas wrapped around supports that he's manipulating. But the way that he does it, they end up being sculptural. Nice. And so, again, that kind of like, whoa, like, how did you get here? Like walking through. And so like seeing the different phases of the work um, in the studio is just so, like you said, illuminating. And it's also um, a great way for artists and curators and critics to build trust. Um, I think yeah. that I think that one of the things that is interesting about our time is that, you know, we're, people are calling this a new black renaissance and a new racial reckoning and all these things. And in terms of, you know, black art futures, um, the market is consuming more and more black art. Right. And there's yeah. never like never before has more have more people been more engaged with with black artistic production um, and black visual culture. And and that's, you know that's good and bad. It has its good, you know, it has good, it's good aspects and has its not so great aspects. And so I think that there's really, um, I've, I've heard so many stories from artists who have had studio visits with curators and critics that, and they have been either, um, seduced and, or, um, uh, encouraged to give curators work mm. as like, you know, in exchange for, promises or favors that might materialize in the future but actually don't and so mm. now now that person has your work for free and can sell it first second third tier of the market like and now you're out of so i just um i take studio visits very seriously because it helps me one see the artist process but it also helps me rep like lets me represent myself in very authentic and ethical ways to artists to let them know like i i'm not here to take advantage of you i'm really here to just amplify all the brilliance that you're already bringing to the world like i don't have any interest in you know kind of man manipulating you you know and i think that yeah. um yeah. i think that studio visits can really be a space for 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 community and trust building um that i think we need more than ever in terms of black spaces and black artists and black curators um black critics as we start to try to fashion our own um our own worlds um and what's possible for us by us right yeah for sure and i think i think that that trust piece that you just talked about is so necessary like it's so um man it, I, I can't emphasize enough how how comforting it is to know that somebody else is thinking about not taking advantage of you you know what i'm saying because it because like i said it is such an emotional out there thing and you know when you're doing studio visits especially unless you're uh you know already have a following or already have representation or something somewhere else like getting those student video could change your life you know exactly. what i'm saying like it could like you know if you get into a show at, at um at camp it's like that's a career maker for right. you if you if you haven't done anything to that level before so you know to have and i'm not saying that the people at camp did this but to have something of that level come to you and basically take advantage of your work 
you know what I'm saying? Just to get a piece up out of you. Like it seems so small, <laughs> like compared to like the power that they do have right. uh, to do it. Right. And no, I've had, I mean, I've, I mentor artists, young artists who are coming out of MFA programs who are not necessarily emerging. They've had other careers and other lives. Some of them are emerging and have never, <clears throat> you know, never had an experience outside of being in a studio program in undergrad and then in their MFA program. But either way, like, I think that more conversations, more actually detailed, honest, just like transparent conversations about contracts, like how to protect your work, how to protect your intellectual right. property from these spaces, yeah. because they, in, and you don't know until you ask. And I think that we're taught not to ask. It's just never like, it's, we're taught not to negotiate. We're taught to just be like, to oh, okay, well, we should be grateful that no, no, you're the prize. No, like this space needs you more than you need them. And as long as you keep that in mind, not to be like, you don't have to be an asshole about it, but just be like, oh, you know, my studio is a business and I have my own contracts. And so I recognize your contract and here are some things that I would like for you to change about your contract and where you can sign my contract. And I think that that's perfectly acceptable at this stage in the game. Um, the more and more the market wants to consume black art, I'm like, I want my artists of African descent to be out here controlling the narrative um, yeah. about their own work. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So, so before we get out of here, give me a couple of names that you, you've seen lately that you think are like on the way to doing big things. Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, Rashawn, obviously, Ruck is already on his way. Oh, yeah, but... that's, that's that, no doubt. Like, you know, <laughs> his, his name, he out there. What's up, Yeah, totally <laughs> What's out up, there. Yeah. Um, and he just, his spirit is just, I'm just like, yes, I want you to get all, all the accolades. Just get, just rack them up. Um, <clears throat> um, Sandy Williams IV is a Richmond-based artist who I've had the pleasure of working with on a few small projects um, here and there in the last year. Um, he and I first met when I was a research fellow at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville um, when he was a, an undergrad. Um, and he has since, I mean, when I first met him, I was like, you're going to be a star. He just wow. nice. has such an incredibly sophisticated and robust and dynamic and just like richly textured idea of art and it, and like what it takes to make it. So like he does these beautiful, and he's, he, and that's across just like media and disciplines. Like he can give you amazing minimalist sculpture. He can give you photography. He can get, I mean, he does it all and it's all brilliant. So Sandy Williams is the fourth. I have to big him up. Nice. Um, I'm thinking who else? Um, I'm like, who are my Philadelphia artists? Let me, let me love up on my Philly artists. I already mentioned Clay. <laughs> um, and I think, um, uh, oh gosh, um, Shailen Wallace is um, an artist that I just did a studio visit with. And she has a very kind of commercial practice, but she's a graphic designer by training, but also is doing like digital art and like, you know, exploring the digital terrain in terms of NFTs and all of that. And I think that mm, that kind of right. digital terrain is really interesting to me. I don't know enough about it. I'm trying to learn. That's why I'm like, let me talk to the artists because <laughs> they know, they be knowing. Yeah. So I'm like, let me, let me talk to y'all. But um, Shailen is, uh, um, I, I forget what, um, uh, her tagline is on, on, on Instagram, but she's very much into surrealism and she does these incredible headless 
photos that she's just kind of like manipulating um, stock photographs from Adobe. And what's interesting about her work is that she's she's been doing this work for almost 10 years now since she was in high school. She's very oh, young. Wow. She just graduated her BFA um, from, um, oh gosh, uh, of course I'm blanking on the, the Salisbury, Salisbury University. It's in Eastern, um, Eastern Shore, Maryland. And she's originally from Wilmington, Delaware, which is how I got to know her work through my um, work with the Delaware Contemporary, which I think I forgot to mention that I'm um, starting a contract with them as their new curator in residence. So I've been doing a lot of studio visits lately and Shailen was one of them. And her work is just, I mean, again, incredible sophistication at detail. And what's interesting about her work is that she has seen the Adobe stock archive of photographs of African-Americans grow over the time that she has been um, doing her own work because she's always, you know, she's she's grabbing stock images of, of black women, black men, black children, um, whatever. Um, and she's, I mean, and she's like, yeah, there used to be almost nothing wow. in, in Adobe stock. And now she's like, yeah, there's more and more, but it's still very lacking. But it's just interesting as we, as we, you know, as this conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion is becoming more and more institutionalized and us, mm -hmm. again, going back to that idea, oh, this is a new black residence or black renaissance. We're in a, a, an era of new racial reckoning. And I'm like, are we really? Because, uh, things are, <laughs> are weirdly staying the same. And so I love that she has been kind of tracking, um, this dearth of, of black representation in Adobe stock and still making this in, these beautiful, beautiful images um, that I think are, yeah, are just, they're stunning. And so we have um, similar interests in surrealism and other things that I'm really excited to, to see what happens from our little, our studio visit, what comes from that. Oh man, that's awesome, y'all. You got a lot yeah. of good stuff going on <laughs> up there with you, y'all. That's great. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited about all the things that are happening. <laughs> and my, my problem is, is that I, I'm too excited. I'm like, I want to do it all. Please, let me do it all. I'm like, yes, let's do it. Let's dream. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. And, then my, and then my sleep is like, girl, lay down. What are you doing? I'm like, I know. It's a mess. Uh, you got to get out there and get it, Joe. I appreciate I, I appreciate you having people. You like only got one life. Hey, you got as far to. as we know. <laughs> That's right, Joe. Tell them where they can find you. Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram at Tiffany E. Barber, no spaces, no dashes, no anything, just Tiffany E. Barber, all one word. Um, you can also um, look at my work on my website at www.tiffanyebarber.com. Again, tiffanyebarber.com, um, which is where I've collected um, my or collated my research projects, my curatorial projects, some of the talks that I've done. There's links to that. Um, and that's probably the best resource um, between my Instagram and my and my website. You should be able to find all the things you want to know about me. And if you don't, please DM me or email me. I'm happy to have conversations. That's what's up, yo. And definitely look out. She she's always doing talks and Zoom meetings and all kinds of stuff. And you can hear more of this good talk, yo. Thank you, Tiffany, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. Such a great. Um, I just love this podcast and I love talking to you. This is so great. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Big thank you to Dr. Tiffany Barber for coming on the show, representing. We got to bring you back and talk more of that good stuff. 
Next week, we got Mr. Aaron Henderson on the podcast. Extraordinary painter. I think y'all really going to like that conversation. To all my artists out there, use this episode to think about the way that you're making space for yourself. Think about where you come from, what you're doing, and how you're creating. That's all you can do. Get out there and make that noise. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.